so we've uh, we've been looking this year. Jess knows what I'm preaching on, so she's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's do this. We've been looking this year at um, Acts 2:42 onwards, um, and this call to be devoted to fellowship, to teaching, to breaking bread, and to prayer. And, and my favourite bit of the whole thing is actually when they say that people were added to their number every day. So Acts 2, 46 to 47, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I just think that's that's amazing that... Um, you know, so many people just saw something in the apostles and they just wanted to join. But I recently realized that in my mind, um, when I kind of play this out, I'm a very visual person, so I picture what's going on. And I just kind of pictured adults attending this, you know, and joining day by day, which is obviously complete nonsense because there will have been people from every single generation um, that came and joined the church at that time. And that is part of what fellowship is, isn't it? It's all about every generation being represented in the church, whether that's kids, teens, adults. They will have all heard the good news of Jesus and they would have all joined at that time. So fellowship is about having everyone from every age group involved in the church. It's a multi-generational church. Um, John and I were talking about this and, and we were trying to figure out like the rough average age of the church and uh and John went with kind of like 40s to 50s and then took great delight in telling me that I'm in that category and he isn't. <laughs> so, but I wondered if you would um, humour me this morning um, before I get into the teaching of this. And, and I'd just like, for my own personal, I don't know, I'd just, I'd just like to see a visual and do a little bit of experiment about the different generations that are actually represented here this morning. So, can I ask you to be brave and when I say your age bracket, stand up. Okay, and, and it is quite a brave thing to do. But if, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to join in. You can stay seated, but then you've got a risk that people will think you're older than you actually are if you do that. So I'm just throwing that out there. So is there anyone here that's willing to admit that they are over 77 years old? 77 or older. Amazing, look at this. So you guys are apparently the post-war generation also known as the silent generation. So you're the ones that just got on with life, just uh, anything for a simple life, um, because you came in kind of after the war and a lot of turbulence. So the silent generation who just get on with everything. And can I just say, we applaud you. You guys are amazing. (laughs) You know, I think we can learn so much from you guys. So thank you, and thanks for being honest about your ages. So the next, the next age category is 59 to 76. So if you are in that age group, if you would stand, wonderful. So you guys are the baby boomers. So uh, there was a huge increase in people having kids after the war. Um, and so you are the ones who are apparently the most optimistic generation. So there you go. If you need a bit of optimism, then these are your people to go to. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you get applause too. Well done for being optimistic. Okay, the next age gap is um, 43 to 58. Okay. So, so you guys are 
the uh, Generation X. These guys, these guys are the ones to watch. These ones are a little bit rebellious, like to protest, apparently, um, have a mistrust of authority, um, but also they put a larger emphasis on education, so I think that's a good thing. So you've, you've also got something great to contribute. Okay, thank you, you can sit down. <laughs> uh, and then the next one, Generation Y is aged 27 to 42. So we're in this one together. <laughs> so here we go. So we are, I'm in this one too. So we are Generation Y, also known as the Millennials because we became adults at around the time of the millennium. So I was actually 18 in, at the year 2000 when it turned into 2000. And, and we are seen um, as the ones who have had to deal with the rise of the internet and financial recessions. So that's, you know, a bit rubbish really, isn't it? But, you know, I'm sure we can contribute something to society. Anyway, we shall see. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> and then we have got age 11 to 26. So if you wouldn't mind standing up, I know you need to be really brave, you guys. Thanks. So these guys are Generation Z. And uh, these are also known as iGen, because you apparently live most of your lives on screens, on the internet, more than, or certainly more than any generation before has done. Um, you're also seen as the most depressed generation. I know, right? And, but also the most likely to engage in social activism and standing up for what you believe in. So you might feel a bit kind of, ugh, but it, it spurs you to action. So that's, that's for this generation. Thank you, guys. You're amazing. <laughs> and then we've got under-11s who are apparently being called Generation Alpha as um, kind of a follow-on from Gen Z. Um, it's, it's kind of a name that's supposed to be show a new start after the depression of Gen Z. <laughs> um, and so in our church, I think we've probably got about eight to ten kids. There are eight kids here this morning um, that are part of Generation Alpha, and, and that generation, they've not finished being born yet, so um, that's still ongoing. So that, that was kind of a little bit of fun, but it also is really clear to me where the gaps are. Um, it's, it's so clear that when you look around that there is a big gap of people missing from Generation Z. Um, and I'm really sad to say that that's reflective of most churches. And I think that's, that is really sad. The, but the church is poorer for that. We need more Gen Zs. And so um, I hope that you will kind of go on this little bit of a journey with me today. And I'm going to talk to you about Gen Z and uh, how amazing they are. And also a lot of the, the battles that they face and a lot of the, the stuff that is going on for them. And I'm sorry if I'm painting a bit of a bleak picture this morning, um, but I do think that we need to face the reality that there are generations of missing from our church, and we need to be spurred into action to do something about that. <clears throat> so last week, John preached on making a house a home, and he gave three points. He said, it starts with you, it requires investment, and it must have Jesus. And really, quite honestly, I could use those same three points today. Um, so I really want you to kind of be thinking that and keep that in your mind as we go forward. It starts with you, it requires investment, and we must have Jesus. And my question today really is, what is happening to Generation Z? What is life like for them? 
So there was a piece of research that was carried out last year and um, I had the privilege of hearing about it from going to a youth ministry conference um, and it still hasn't been published to date. Um, so it's, it's that new that it hasn't been published yet. Um, but I heard about it last year and it's called Translating God. Um, and basically what they did was they asked over 100 teenagers the simple question, what is life like for you? Um, and then they collated all this data from all of the interviews and found four strong themes coming through. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Um, we're going to look at these four themes. So the first of these themes was around pressure. Generation Z feel under pressure to do better, be better, be different, be unique, work harder. And this can be summed up with the question, what else do I need to do to be good enough? So Gen Z feel pressure to be more mature and formed than they actually are. They're expected to be more grown up, make good choices, go further than their parents have. And those interviewed said that it wasn't enough to just be good, but that they were expected to be perfect. And there's no room for mistakes. There's no room for that learning through failure that some of the other generations have had. They're expected to be mature enough to make good decisions without having the life experience to know how to make those good decisions. They also feel under a lot of pressure to have perfected their look or to be interesting, to be different, to be unique. They need to fit in and belong, but somehow they also have to stand out from the crowd. And finally, they feel a pressure to fix the world, to achieve good results and do something about climate change, about global crises. I don't know about you, but I can just feel the weight of that on my shoulders. It's so much to carry for such a young age. So what is the message that we in, as a church have for this generation when it comes to them feeling pressure? Well, I think that this generation, Gen Z, are a unique generation in that quite often their parents or even their grandparents haven't been to church. And you might think that that's perhaps a bad thing, but I, I can see a positive in that, in that they haven't heard much about God or the Bible. And so that kind of gives us a clean slate. They're more open to hearing about God and stories of the Bible because they don't have any of those preconceptions, any of those misunderstandings. Their parents haven't been hurt by the church and left. Their parents have never been in church in the first place. And so we've got this, this clean slate where they're willing to hear and, and open to hearing more about God because they know so little about him and so little about the Bible. <clears throat> so the way that we can kind of release some of this pressure is to talk to them about the Bible, give them Bible stories. And I don't mean like the Disney versions where, you know, everybody lives happily ever after and the stuff that you might teach the really young kids where you miss out the bad bits. But I'm talking about like the real versions where we've got real Bible characters. So for example, Moses, who felt completely inadequate. He didn't feel able to succeed at all. He didn't feel good enough. He tried to back out of what God was calling him to do and came up with a bunch of excuses and wanted God to give the job to someone else. We can see in Exodus 3.11, Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
And so, of course, we know how that story goes. We know that it wasn't plain sailing for Moses, but we know that God was with him at every single step and that God was faithful in the end to his promise. And that's a real message that we can send to Generation Z. I think we also need to show this generation how to rest. And I think sometimes we're not very good at doing that ourselves, are we? Because we get really carried away with life and, you know, we're always busy and and doing stuff. Um, But... Sabbath rest is a really important thing for all of us to kind of get a hold of. God commanded a Sabbath rest as far back as creation. And then Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when we can discover and learn to rest for ourselves, then we can demonstrate that and teach it to the next generation. Jesus relieves us of our pressure. He takes our burdens. So that's the first one, all to do with pressure. The second theme that came through the research was about judgment. Um, I'm going to spend a bit more time on this one than the others because I think it's, it's really important. So judgment, the kind of uh, tagline with that is, don't get it wrong or you'll be sorry. And that's the kind of judgment that Gen Z feel under. And that could be summed up with the question, how do I avoid making mistakes? So it does link in a bit with pressure, the pressure to feel to be perfect. And they feel that they have to be perfect and can't deviate from that because if they do make a mistake, then they will be judged. Gen Z, from this research, know that they shouldn't judge, but in reality, they are constantly judged and continually judging each other. They're judged by peers, and they'll be called out for stuff again and again. So quite often, they're scared to put a stake in the ground to say, this is what I believe, because if others don't believe the same thing, then they will be judged. Everybody expects everyone to be tolerant of everybody else, but they don't have that tolerance themselves. And that comes down to them themselves feeling judged. Things can get easily twisted and it backfires and they can get bullied for it. And because especially the younger end of Gen Z spend a lot of their time online, um, there's that potential for a record to be kept of it, for evidence to be put on, um, for for them then to be like a constant reminder that they can never get away from. So I just want you to think for a moment, think back to your teenage years And uh, just consider what was perhaps the most embarrassing thing that you did when you were a teenager. I don't want you to tell me. Just think about it. Um, So maybe it was something silly like, I don't know, you had a crazy hairstyle or you wore some bonkers clothes. Um, Or maybe it was something more serious like you made a really bad choice in a relationship or something that you did that was really bad that got you into trouble or at least should have got you into trouble. You probably got memories of that. You may even have a physical photo of it but it won't be very far-reaching. And perhaps you even got away with it, whatever it was, and maybe it was done in secret, and maybe it was never spoken of again. But now I want you to imagine that somebody got a picture of that or a video of that, and then it got put online, and all of your friends saw it, and then they shared it, and it just went like wildfire. Just imagine the humiliation of that. Soon everyone would know about it, and you would never be able to live it down. You would never be able to escape from that. And that's kind of the world that Gen Z live in today. They can't make mistakes, because if they do, it's talked about and it spreads like wildfire to everybody in that digital society that we find ourselves in. 
and there will be constant evidence for years to come. It won't be forgotten. We live in a broken, judgmental world. And I think as the church, we've got two options. We can either join in with the judging, we can make assumptions about this generation, or we can show grace, mercy, and empathy. So a few months ago, a lady visited a new church for the first time. And uh, one of the church leaders in that church went to her to speak to her to make her feel welcome. And um, the leader said, um, you know, welcome. Uh, you know, ha- I hope you're okay. How, how have you come to be here this morning? And, um, and the lady just said to her, well, I just wanted to check. Am I okay sitting here? And then the church leader said, yes, yes, of course. You can sit anywhere you like. That's fine. The lady responded with, well, I was sitting over on the other side, but somebody told me that was their seat and they asked me to move. That lady was named Dorothy, and she never visited that church again. And that was here, (laughs) a few months ago, in this church. And as you can see, it breaks my heart. I was that church leader. I was that church leader. And she never came back. Can I just be clear that no one in this church has a reserved seat? (laughs) Do you know at home, I have my seat, John has his seat, but if you come to my house and you sit in my seat, I'll leave you there. I will not ask you to move. I would rather sit on the floor than ask you to get out of my seat. (laughs) I don't know who it was that said that to that person, and I don't need to know, that's fine. But it makes me sad that that is Dorothy's story. Because actually, that's not our story. We are a welcoming church. We pride ourselves on that fact. People that come in for the first time, the majority of people say, I feel so welcomed here. Thank you for the welcome you've given me. So that is not our story, and I don't want that to be our story ever again. We pride ourselves on being a welcoming church. But Dorothy's story is that we are not welcoming and I don't know what happened there. Hope Church is going to grow. We've been singing and praying for revival this morning and I think that's so fitting for what I'm talking about now because Hope Church is going to grow and we're gonna see all shapes and sizes of people coming through that door. Perhaps people that you wouldn't normally hang around with, people that you don't understand, people that are different from you people that have different views on the world, they're going to be coming through the door. And what will their experience be? We want broken people to come into this house because one of our values is restoring the brokenhearted. If someone different from you walks in here, we make them feel welcome. We want them to stay. We want them to get that opportunity to find restoration with Jesus. But that's not going to happen if they feel judged and unwelcome. A lot of you know I have a a 21-year-old daughter. She's part of the Gen Z generation. Um, And she's been brought up coming to church, but she hasn't been to church for years. And I've been consistently praying for her. And, you know, she's now getting to the point, praise God, where she's interested in church and she wants to start going to church again. And I can't tell you what that means to me. It's amazing. Um, 
but it's it's been a long journey and it's been you know years of conversations with her and she's now finally getting to that point and I'm encouraging her to go to a church near her and part of me is a little bit scared to do that because I don't know of the welcome she's going to receive you know that's my daughter and I know that if she was here I'd be like yes you're in church and I'd you know I'd welcome her with open arms and I'd be so excited for that but it's, it's now my prayer that when she is brave enough to take that first step and go into church, that she is welcomed and that she feels loved and accepted for who she is. Otherwise, that literally could be the end of it. She may never step foot in a church again if she has one bad experience. So we need to be a welcoming, non-judgmental church. James 2, 8 13 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, which means discrimination, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, it's sorry, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor, transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're told here that if we discriminate against people, then we're committing sin. We're not upholding the second greatest commandment of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, God is so merciful with us that it just follows automatically that we should have mercy for other people. There's um, an author called Paul Tripp. He writes books and Bible plans for Christian parents, and he's got a lot to say about mercy. And I think this is so relevant for any Gen Zs that we have coming through the door. And I also think it's the responsibility of all of us to parent them in this way. And he said this, One of the biggest errors Christian parents can make is allowing themselves to forget. If you allow yourself to forget the daily mercies you receive from your father's hands, mercies you could never earn, it will become easier for you to not parent your children with mercy. Mercy is tender-heartedness and compassion towards someone in need. Our children are just that, needy. They need guidance and protection. They need help and rescue. They need wisdom and instruction. They need confrontation and discipline. They need patience and grace. They need love and compassion. They need support and provision. And they need to see God and themselves with accuracy. There is not a day when your children do not need your mercy. Because of this, your primary calling as a parent is not first to represent God's judgment, but rather to constantly deliver his mercy. And I love that. It is a tall order to be constantly merciful. It really is. As a parent myself, I know <laughs> it is a tall order to be constantly merciful. But that's the calling that we've had placed on our lives from God. And Generation Z, more than any other generation, I believe, need to be shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So as a church, we need to create a holy and safe environment in this house where people can come in and feel loved and accepted regardless, regardless of anything. But what if they don't look like me? We'll love them anyway. What if they don't understand our faith? we love them anyway. What if they don't uphold a Christian lifestyle or live as we want them to live? We love them, we love them, we love them.
another brilliant author, Hilary Morgan Ferrer. She says explicitly that it's okay to love the sinner and hate the sin. She says, there's a huge lie that is currently permeating every area of our society, and that is, a person and his or, idea, his or her ideas cannot be separated. That you have to love both the person and their ideas, or reject them both. What a stealthy tactic of the enemy. If this were true, then God could not love any of us. So just think about that for a second. God separates us from our sin. He loves us. He does not love our sin. I believe that it is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict people. It's not my job, and it's not your job. It's our job to love and accept people. So that's judgment. And the third theme highlighted in the research was to do with labeling. So Gen Z are basically asked to define themselves. And this can be summed up in the question, have I expressed who I am and is that lovable? Do you know, I think, I think labels can be really useful sometimes because if you've got a mental health condition or a physical illness, um, or a learning difficulty, then a label can really help you to get the support that you need, um, and it can help you in that way. Labels can create understanding of a person, but I think they can also create misunderstanding. And it also has this kind of unintended consequence of once you've got a label, that's it, it's hard to shift it. You are labelled that for life. So I work part-time in a secondary school as a teaching assistant, and I work with pupils who come under the, the banner of special educational needs. And um, so each one of the pupils that I work with, they have an EHCP, which is an educational care and health plan. I think I got that right. Um, but it's, it's basically just a plan with their label, like what, what it is that is kind of wrong with them, what they need support with, um, what they need help with. Now, this might sound uh, really unprofessional to you, but I, I refuse to read their plans. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to know what their label is. I don't want to know um, kind of the, the list of issues that they're supposed to have. I don't tend to read their plans. I make it a habit. But I don't want to meet and support a child with a preconceived idea of who they are before I've even met them. And so I would much rather meet that child, I'd much rather spend a bit of time getting to know that child, and then if I have questions after that, then I can go to the plan. But originally, initially, I just want to meet that child and discover who they are for myself without me coming to any judgment of them. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that it's a bad thing that they have these plans. Obviously, they need them, and they need the labels to be able to get the help and support, because without these kids being labelled autistic, I would not be there to come alongside them, to help them. So I'm, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but labels can be damaging when they're given and not taken away. Or perhaps if they're given wrongly, obviously that can be very damaging. So in recent years, there has been a much greater awareness of mental health issues, and I think that's brilliant because it means that people are able to talk about it. But at the same time, those who are, are genuinely depressed and anxious get support, but then it's to do with attention as well. People around them see them getting that support and that attention, and then they can say that they've got um, a mental health issue and try and get attention in that way. And those labels can become part of their identity, and they can never escape it. So those that have been given mental health labels, they tend to get that attention. Um, for example, if they say, you know, 
oh, you have an anxiety disorder, you have depression, then they have that label and it sticks with them forever. Um, and they take, uh, their friends see this and sometimes their friends can take on the behaviours as well. So um, I heard of a, a, a it was a, a crazy thing. There was a, kind of a bit of a, a trend where a lot of girls were self-harming, not because they felt the need to self-harm due to a mental health condition, but because their friends were self-harming and they saw their friends getting that attention. And so they also wanted to do that to get the attention that they craved. And so this generation are just crying out for attention. Last academic year, I was out in a class with one child in particular, but also um, within that class, there were a lot of um, girls specifically that had really tough lives, tough home lives, and they had a lot of stuff going on, you know, some really heartbreaking stuff. Um, and there was this one girl in particular whose home life was just chaotic. Um, was just, she was just a mess. And she would um, show this by displaying really poor behaviour in class. Um, and I was kind of the brunt of most of that. She once flipped a table at me, which was fun. Um, but she, she just got angry. She would throw stuff. She would lash out at people. And so I used to take her out of the class when things got to that point. Um, I, and things got too much for her. I would take her out and we'd just have a chat. And it got to the point where she kind of began to trust me. And she began to um, confide in me some of the stuff that was going on at home. And she, uh, it changed, it, there was a, a noticeable change in her behaviour then in the class. And she got to the point where she could say to me, um, Miss, I'm, I'm just feeling a bit on edge. Uh, could we go just for a walk? And, and we'd do that and we'd go and we'd have a little chat and then she'd come back into class and she'd carry on. And we got to that point. And I think just because I was giving her that attention and that um, love and just being a, a listening ear for her, that then she felt able to kind of manage that a lot better. Um, and unfortunately, this, this academic year, I'm not with that class anymore. I've been moved to a different class. And she doesn't have anyone in the class with her. And she's gone back to that behaviour. She's gone back to lashing out, to throwing things, and she's just always in trouble. Um, but she, I still see her around school, and, you know, we say hi, but there's, there's not much opportunity for me to kind of sit and have proper conversations with her. Um, but just last week, I, I saw that she was with a teacher and I could see that she was in trouble. And then the teacher turned to do something on the computer. And so I just went up to her and I said, is everything okay? And, um, and she, within like one minute, basically spilled out her whole, everything that's going on for her at home. She just said it all out because I've built that trusting relationship with her. and She knows me. And she just said it all out how it was. And, you know, she's going through a really tough time. And the teacher, who I think was probably issuing her a detention at the time on the computer, just turned to me and had this look of, I had no idea that all of that was going on for that child. And the reason that she was able to tell me was just because I'd, I'd invested myself into her. I'd, I'd given her that time just to speak to me, to be a listening ear to her. Now, I'm not saying that teachers are terrible. You know, teachers are heroes. I, I'm the first to you know, cheer on teachers, I think they're brilliant, but they simply don't have time to effectively deal with the number of kids that are craving attention. They just cannot. One of the young people interviewed for this research said, no one likes attention seekers, but everybody wants attention. And it was also said that only authentic attention is allowed, and those that are putting it on are very quickly found out and labelled as attention seekers. Again, a label that is hard to shift. 
Real, authentic attention is seen as scarce, and some kids will do absolutely anything to get it. Gen Z want genuine love and affection and an acceptance for who they are. And another area of labelling is that of gender and sexuality. Teenagers today feel under pressure to declare their sexual status and gender from really early on. Just this week, I had a 12-year-old ask me what pansexual meant because they thought that that might describe them best. But once they go with that label, then that's it. They've labelled themselves for life and it becomes their identity. Channel 4 did a piece of research about Gen Z and they found that 52%, so more than half, of 13 to 24-year-olds believe that there is more than one gender. And I just think that there's too much choice. I think the choice has been given with the intention of giving freedom to people, but instead of it being freeing, I think it's overwhelming and confusing for this generation. If I can put it this way, when I was a kid, I had four channels on the TV, and I had a Sega Master System with probably three good games, and two of them were like on the system anyway. Um, now my kids, same age, they have an Xbox, they have a Nintendo Switch, they've got available to them YouTube, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Now TV, Disney, and, and that's not even getting as far as actual television. And all of these options are just bonkers, and there's so many options even on each different channel. It's just overwhelming. And as an aside, what do my kids choose to do? They choose to watch videos of other people playing games. I'm like, what is that? It just baffles me. <laughs> but my point is, there's too much choice, but also way too much pressure on teenagers, 11 and 12-year-olds, to make those decisions from such a young age. But the good news is that we know a God who labels Gen Z as his children. He labels them as precious in his eyes. He made them in his image and likeness. He knit them together in their mother's womb. They are his treasured possession. And it's our job to proclaim this over their lives, to show them how God sees them and to share his love with them. It's our job to give them the love and attention that they crave. And then the final theme that came through this research is a fear of the future. So they have a belief that everything's getting worse. This can be summed up with the question, is there hope for my future? Gen Z feel as though their safety is threatened, and especially since COVID, there's been this realisation that faraway things can come close and completely turn our lives upside down. And so with social media and news reports being shared far and wide, we know so much more in this generation than we ever have before about what is going on in the world. So last Sunday, you probably will have received the uh, tester emergency alert message. And um, it was quite funny in our house because John didn't know anything about it until the day before where he saw something on uh, social media about it. And, and he kind of said, did you know that there's going to be this emergency test text message thing and the boys kind of looked at him like well duh yeah we've known about it for weeks like we've been talking about it at school for ages but we find in our house that this is something that often happens where the boys will tell us stuff about current affairs and what's going on because they watch news round every day at school 
and so they know what's going on. And I think it's, you know, I do think it's a good thing that they've got this wider world view and that they're being introduced to things that are going on outside of their own little bubble. But at the same time, it's a very scary thing to think about what is going on in the world, and it can create a big burden for 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, teenagers. It's hard. So Gen Z feel genuine anxiety over the cost of living crisis. It creates feelings of hopelessness for us as adults with that responsibility, but they are feeling it too. They're worried about what the future holds for them, like what will be left for them when they're adults. Will there be any jobs? Will they be able to afford to live? And they also feel great concern over ecological issues too. You know, we said before that they feel the pressure to fix the world, things like global warming, plastic pollution, deforestation, and so on. There's so many things that need fixing on this earth, and the task is overwhelming. They fear that there'll be no earth left for them and their children to enjoy. And this has come to the point where eco-anxiety has been recognised by the American Psychological Society as a real thing and defined as a chronic fear of environmental doom. And I think that these issues send Gen Z probably into two different directions. They either do all they can to change it, like we were talking about before, you know, that's where you get your activism and people that want to speak out against these issues. Or, on the other hand, they become really lethargic about the whole issue and don't bother trying at all because what's the point? It's so overwhelming that anything I can do is not going to make a difference, so what's the point? So the future doesn't feel safe. But the present doesn't feel safe either. And for some teens, it's a reality that they're not safe at home and don't feel safe at school. That sometimes they're not safe online. They can't go there to escape because that's a scary place too. And they might not even feel safe alone because their thoughts take over. There just seems to be no escape. And that feeling of safety and security is often missing from their lives. Gen Z have been forced to grow up and think about these issues too soon when the previous generations should be shouldering that responsibility and creating an environment of safety for them. And I think that that is something that we as a church can do. We can provide a place of safety. We know that God is a solid foundation. We know that we can rely on him and not have fear of the future. We know that God's got a plan and a purpose for every one of us. We know that the future is not a scary place because God is in it. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And then Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we as a church can point people to God who exchanges anxiety for peace. We as a church body can also provide safety in community. In 2017, there was some research done about the effects of collective assembly. So basically how it impacts people when they get together in a large group. And they said, it is consistent with the idea that collective assembly... <coughs> is more than just people getting together to distract themselves from life by watching a game concert or play. 
Instead, it is an opportunity to feel connected to something bigger than oneself. It's an opportunity to feel joy, social connection, meaning and peace. Collective assembly has long been part of the human experience and the current work begins to quantify its important psychological benefits. What's more, there seems to be a lingering effect. We hold on to our feelings of social connectedness and well-being past the actual event. How amazing is that? I love that. Proof that being together is good for your well-being, for your psychological well-being. And how much more so in church when God is in our midst. We have a unique opportunity to provide a place of community, belonging and safety for a generation that is judged and labelled, crippled with pressure and fearful of the future. So as we come to a close, I just want you to think about everything that's been said today. I'm not going to ask you all to sign up to do youth work, don't panic. But if there has been something stirring within your spirit as I've been talking, then please do come and talk to me. I'm not asking for any youth work qualifications, just a listening ear. Do you know, at the school where I work, uh, there's these motivational quotes from people all over the place. I don't think the kids read them, but I do. And um, one of them that I love says, be the change that you wish to see in the world. So I just want to say, be the change that you wish to see in the church. If you have felt lonely, be a good friend. If you felt judged, be non-judgmental. If you felt disconnected in some way, then make every effort to connect with people. I think it is everybody's responsibility to make every generation feel welcome here. And so I'd like everyone to challenge themselves to talk to someone from a different generation from your own. Please don't bombard the few that are here from Generation Z. There's only three of them here this morning, and if you all just go and try and talk to them, you'll scare them off, and we don't want that. <laughs> but challenge yourself today to get to know someone from a different generation, to learn from them. I think all the, across all the generations, there's so much that we can learn from each other. So challenge yourself today and over the next few weeks to do that. And then in the future, when more people from Generation Z do come through the door, which I believe they will, then please remember to show mercy and love. And then finally, I simply want to ask you to pray for Generation Z. So we're going to be holding a prayer meeting here on Friday the 19th of May at half past seven. And we'll remind you about it for the next couple of weeks. But if you are able to come, I would love for you to come and just join me in praying specifically for Generation Z. But for now, I'd like you to stand with me and we'll just pray for them now. So Father God, we just come before you now and we cry out on behalf of Generation Z. We ask that you would meet with them God, we ask that you would be their place of safety and comfort. We ask that they would know the truth about who they are and whose they are, that they are your children. God, help us to be merciful to each other and especially to this generation. God, I just pray that you would break into schools, into colleges, into workplaces, and that your will would be done in those places. 
God, we ask for revival. We say, heaven, break out. We ask that you would give us godly influence in those places. Just open doors up for us to speak into the lives of the people that need to know you. We simply say, Holy Spirit, come and have your way with us. Thank you.